It's my pleasure this morning to introduce our guest speaker, Luke Hendricks. And on a personal level, it's kind of cool. Uh, Luke hired me into ministry when nobody else would, uh, when I was 25. Uh, some still wonder if that was a wise decision. Uh, he introduced me to my wife, and Luke basically got me the job in Bend that allowed me to move up here and begin working towards a church plant. So I can honestly say that Antioch wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Luke. Uh, on a professional level, Luke is the executive pastor at Imago Day over in Portland, and for the last 15 years or so, he has basically been mentoring and, and discipling and leading other pastors uh, all over the country. Phenomenal um, giftedness at just raising up the next generation of leaders in the church, um, really exciting that way. Luke is a man's man. Luke is honest and straightforward. And as he comes up this morning, you guys are going to enjoy getting to hear him present the gospel to us this morning. So would you welcome with me Luke Hendricks. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, now you can. Ken, thanks for the introduction. It's good to be here. Um, spent 11 years uh, with my family in Central Oregon, so driving over the mountain always feels like going home to some degree. So it felt really good yesterday to see the sun, actually. <laughs> we haven't seen that in a long time in Portland, and... Um, Usually it goes okay for me, but this year it's been a little rough as it's related to that, and I'm ready for sunshine. There's a few things that I think are uh, probably pertinent for you to know this morning just as we get started. I've been married to Donna for 31 years. She's here with me this morning. I have three children, uh, Natalie, who's married to Matthew. She actually lives back in Kentucky. Uh, Jacob, and he's married to Rose, and they're in the Vancouver area, and Adam is married to Emily, and he's also in Vancouver. Now, the two boys have not started into the whole kid thing yet, but Natalie and Matthew have given us three grandchildren. And so I was sharing videos with my nephew and niece, which are uh, Evan and Lindsay Hendricks, last night of my grandson at uh, five years old, and he's playing soccer, YMCA soccer. It's a sport I've never played but it was really interesting when the video got sent to me, a little flip, flip videos that my daughter sent. Um, I'm watching him as he's scoring goals. And his dad is a very humble man. And uh, two games ago, uh, Isaiah was in for five minutes and scored four goals. And Matthew jerked him and said, you can't play anymore because <laughs> you're dominating the ball. So when Isaiah called me, he said, Grandpa, I was dominating the ball. And um, when I watched the video, I felt my heart stir again. And I didn't know if I'd ever feel this, at least this way. When the boys and Natalie were in competition, you get that parental thing going, you know, that just is frothy at times. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's over for me. I'll just watch my kids do that with their kids. And I'm watching Isaiah, and it all came back. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wow. Uh, it's good to be here with you this morning, though. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. You're going to stick your finger there. We'll be in a couple places, but um, I'm grateful to be here, grateful for Ken's introduction. What you need to know is that um, Ken is a peer. Um, that was probably true from the outset some 15 years ago, 14, whatever it's been. 
Um, and so I, I come with uh, a great sense of honor to, to this church, what God has birthed here in Bend, and um, through Ken and vision and faithfulness. And he, uh, as you well know, has a brilliant mind, really and truly, and has a heart for God and God's people that's big. And I've watched Ken in multiple scenarios and situations, be faithful to what God has given to him. So um, in, in every respect, he's a peer, and I'm grateful to be here with you. Jesus is trying to lay out, really, what this whole thing is going to look like related to um, people following him. So when we take a look at Matthew 5, we see that it is the longest discourse that Jesus gives in the New Testament that's recorded, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's described as him going up on a hill. Luke says the people were in a level place, and so sometimes there's a contradiction as to was he up on a mountain or not. But uh, suffice it to say, he did climb up, and perhaps it was flatter and it was a mesa on top similar to Central Oregon. Um, and sat down and began to teach. And he is preaching what this whole picture looks like. So this morning, what I want to do is kind of reframe the Sermon on the Mount. Now, maybe it won't be a reframe for you. Maybe you've heard it this way before, and, and that's great. We'll just go for reinforcement. If you haven't, though, maybe we just look at it from a different angle. Many times when we turn here, we start to look at what Jesus is laying out, We understand it's the gospel of the kingdom. He declares that in um, the previous chapter. Verse uh, 23 of chapter 4 says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So this is Jesus describing the kingdom, the gospel kingdom. But we sometimes come to the Sermon on the Mount and look for the instruction, which is very typical for us uh, having um, this insatiable desire to find the nuggets and the principles that are found in Scripture that are somehow going to change the way we think and feel and do things. But it's Jesus who's trying to put this in a larger context and saying, I would like to describe for you what the kingdom looks like. And I would like to describe what the citizens look like. But many times when we start into the Beatitudes, we start to see that Jesus is declaring character. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And you've probably heard preachers stand up and say, so let's talk about poverty. Let's talk about poor in spirit and how you would become poor in spirit. And it's probably a worthy sermon But I think what Jesus is saying is declarative, not a prescription like you should be poor in spirit, but rather an indicative. Those who follow me are poor in spirit. It is descriptive language, not prescriptive. It's important for us to look at it that way because it's going to shift our thinking. And as preachers, oftentimes we stand in this place declaring what the gospel is and seeking desperately to get you in the game. We think we're in the game. That may or may not be true, though, honestly. 
So when I read this, I have to read it for my own soul and say, is this who I am? Is it describing me? But preachers invariably are looking somehow to gain traction and raise up a people that will be the kingdom here on earth that the world can see. So what Jesus is saying here is this is what it looks like to be saved. These are descriptive verses. The Beatitudes are not a checklist for salvation, but rather they're a set of descriptions for those who are saved. It is the gospel narrative. It is the gospel story in complete fullness. And so Jesus is going to give it to us very succinctly. But many of us have been privy to someone declaring what the gospel is. And as human beings in this era, particularly, we've tried to truncate that, bring it down to something that we can chew on and eat. So here's what it means to be saved. And we walk you through four laws or five steps or some little booklet or drawing on a napkin that kind of is supposed to tell us that this is what the gospel is. The unfortunate part, though, is really that's just a portion of the gospel, probably referred to as the plan of salvation, how someone comes to saving faith. But that's not the whole gospel by any stretch. And Jesus is saying, I want to paint a bigger picture here. I want to show you what it's like, what kingdom citizenship is really like. This is the gospel narrative. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Simply put, blessed is the highest possible form of life. To be blessed is to live life to the absolute fullest. So when you see the word blessed, that's what I need you to remember. Anytime it comes up in scripture, and even when you would sign off, blessings on a note, would you understand that it is the highest possible form of life? It is what God is giving to those who are saved. These are the ones who have become convinced of their spiritual poverty. They've been made conscious of their misery without God. They have come to the realization that there is something more to life than the gaining of things and possessions and trying to control situation and circumstance. Once coming to that realization, God declares them to be saved, provided they would put their faith in a God who says, I will take all of your poverty upon myself, all of your sin, seeking your own self, and trying to make your life secure. And it, it, sin comes in all kinds of shapes and fashions. Sometimes with motivations that we think are true and right, and sometimes absolutely wrong. But a desire for us to try and fill up our life on our own. That's what sin really is. Standing against God and saying, we're big enough. We're God-like enough to be in charge of our own salvation. Someone who's poor in spirit recognizes that that's not true. How would you recognize it? Well, here's, here would be the beginning. That somewhere deep in you, you recognize that you're not 
satisfied, that you're in pain, that something hurts. And you've tried all kinds of things to to quell the pain, the anxiousness, the depression, the despair, and you can't find it. Everybody knows that pain. I believe God created us and created our souls. But I don't think he created a soul so small that the world could satisfy it. I don't think that's possible. It's going to take more than the world and anything the world has to offer to satisfy the soul. And God knew that. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who know that. Blessed are those who know that they've come to the end and they cannot save themselves or control their circumstance and they know they're completely poor. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is a complete salvation. The sum total of blessings that result when God is acknowledged as king. I want to take you to another passage, Mark chapter 4. So if you would turn there, if not, it's okay, I can just read it. Mark chapter 4, there is an incident in which uh, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. It's early on in his public ministry. And I really believe that this gets at the core of poverty, The Bible's pretty clear that says the beginning of all knowledge or the beginning of all wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. The psalmists say it. The wisdom literature from Solomon says it. It's repeated a number of times in scripture. And preachers have tried to figure out just what does that mean? Fear of the Lord. It's crazy because fear is an all-captivating emotion. When you have it, you know you have it. But there's been an attempt to say, well, this fear, this godly fear, fear of God is somehow different than the emotional fear that we'd, we'd feel watching a Stephen King movie or reading a novel of his. This is, this is, this is not like Freddy or Jason or that kind of fear. This is some other kind of fear. It's reverential. And yet, you can do your own study here and just simply go back through Scripture and look at the people that came face-to-face with God and what their reaction was. And it's one of complete disintegration. On their face, on the ground, trying to find somewhere to hide in the presence of God. So I wouldn't want to take away the emotion of this and would want you to understand that Poverty begins with a healthy fear of the Lord. So let's take a look at this from Mark chapter 4, verse 35. On that day when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he uh, and the other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Now, we haven't really set where this is. This is in the Sea of Galilee. And actually, I've been to the Sea of Galilee and looked at it. It's a large lake. It's not really a sea. I've lived next to the the Pacific Ocean my whole life, and I'll tell you what a sea looks like. The Sea of Galilee doesn't look that way. 
It looks very much like a very large lake, very round and hard to see across the other side. But you can see the other side. Um, I don't know about you, but there are few things in life that are more scary to me than open water. I don't know what it is. I love the beach and I love to be in the surf. Love that. Get me on a boat far enough out to where I can't see land and everything changes. I've always felt, this is rather arrogant, but I've always felt like um, if you dropped me on land anywhere on planet Earth, I, I got a percentage shot of making it out. I'm going to walk out somewhere. I'm going to figure this thing out. A Bear grills kind of thing, right? You know? Uh, that's what I'd like to think anyway. But if you drop me in the ocean, I'm, I'm done. It's over. Okay? I don't know what I would do to try and survive out in the open water and you can't see what's underneath you and it's wicked. Okay, well, this is similar to that situation. Jesus is with his new disciples and they're in a boat and they're trying to cross the other side. Sea of Galilee sits in um, almost the lowest place on planet Earth. Sea of Galilee's here, the river Jordan flows out, it flows into the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth, but the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level. And the Mediterranean Ocean is to the west, Um, just after the ocean is the Jezreel Valley of Israel, very lush, green, verdant, uh, paradise-looking place. On the other side is all desert. You have this warm, moist air and this hot, dry air coming off the desert, and it meets right over this lake, and it creates its own weather system. And it can become very violent. Now, the guys in the boat with Jesus at this point are his disciples, and many of them are fishermen. Just keep that in your head for a second. They fished the Sea of Galilee their whole life since they were really small. So... Here come the waves, they're breaking over the boat. Verse 38, Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, you do not care that we are perishing? All right. The fishermen are afraid. What does that mean? It wouldn't take much for me to be afraid. Yeah, that means it's really bad. Okay, when the fishermen are afraid, because they know the water, they've been on the lake in all the storms, they got it down, they know. But when they're saying, hey, we're going to die, then you know that this thing is really hopeless. They're looking at it from the standpoint of, yeah, the next morning we're going to see the bloated bodies floating to shore and, and boats wrecked and all kinds of damage done. This is what it's like to be in fear. This is what it's like to go to the very core of your being, the most base fear that you can have, that you are going to lose your life and you're out of control. Your circumstances are out of control. You got nothing. And this is it. For humanity, this is the top of the fear spectrum, except for one thing, as I've been told. Public speaking, that's worse. But I'm not sure. That's not been one of my fears. But they tell me it's worse than the fear of death. Some do. But at any rate, Jesus is asleep in the boat. Verse 39, and he got up and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. I have a son-in-law who is a Greek scholar working on a PhD. And I've asked Matt, can you translate that hush, be still? Because I've heard it translated before and I'm not much of a Greek scholar. Certainly can look it up, but literally... In the Greek of the day, the street language of the day, that can be translated shut up. 
So that's what Jesus does. He stands up in the boat and he says, shut up. And what happens? And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Now this is getting at the core of it. Jesus is saying, why are you afraid? Is that a, is that a good question? Or does that feel like a stupid question? Well, Jesus is the one that can get away with these questions all the time, seems like. He can ask these questions. Why are you still afraid? It's like, well, because we're going to die. Well, that would make sense. We're going to die. And Jesus is saying, uh, why? Here's the point. Jesus is trying to make it very clear here. Fear is reserved for me. Not for circumstances. Just one place that you would assign fear to, it's where all wisdom and all knowledge begin. It's when you would understand that you're not like me. I think they get it, though. Look at this. Verse 40, and he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Verse 41, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Now, how do you go from being afraid of dying and going to ratchet it up a notch? What does that feel like? This is what we're driving at in terms of poor in spirit. That I need to begin this lifelong journey of understanding that God is wholly different than me. There's no comparison. And that he is worthy of fear. And that the world feels a little shaky when I start to see that picture. And that my circumstances and situations begin to pale. It's Jesus who uses a quote in the New Testament more often than any other one that he uses. Does anybody know what it is? Do not be afraid. That's what he says more than any other grouping of words. That's what he uses the most in the New Testament. Do not be afraid. And it's always in reference to the circumstances and situations of life. He's going to say to his disciples much later, in the world, you're going to have much trouble, but you take heart. I've overcome the world. And it's those people who understand their poverty, beginning with this understanding of God and fearing him. The psalmist says in Psalm 130 that God gives us forgiveness so that we may fear him. Now those two words don't seem like they can be juxtaposed or laid alongside each other. Forgive and fear, doesn't that seem weird? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I have the ability to fill your soul up. I have the ability to heal the hurts and the brokenness and take all the sin, all of your attempts at trying to satisfy yourself, to take it away completely, to forgive you of your sin. I'm going to do that. And in fact, I've done that. And for those that are in my kingdom, they understand that. So Jesus is describing what kingdom citizens look like. And he does so by beginning and saying, they're poor in spirit. But with that poverty comes my salvation because you understand who you are and you understand who I am and the good news that I bring, that you can be reconciled to me and your soul can be satisfied.
fear as poverty, God as wholly other than me. A basic understanding. Well, verse 5, excuse me, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We understand a little bit more, maybe these words, mourning, we all understand. It's a sadness, right? It's a soberness. It's a feeling sorrowful. A sober-minded perspective. It would be in conjunction with poor in spirit to come to an understanding that my own sin I am well aware of. Now, it's interesting because in our world today, when we come up against those things that we're truly sad for, when our sin has found us out and there are consequences to it, there are a number of things that come to mind or, well, let's look at three things in particular, three ways in which we try and handle this mourning on our own. They, they actually can be found in philosophy and Ken would be able to tell you exactly where they came from, which philosopher began the whole theory. But this whole idea that uh, my life and uh, the mourning that I have for my life, the sorrow that I have for my life is so debilitating that I enter into despair. And really, that's how you can describe all of life, that it's a very despairing situation. It's... uh, not worthy of me going on. The only salvation that I could find would be simply to will up enough power and enough strength to overcome my despair. But that's way too much energy and I don't have it. So I'm just going to give up, slide in, be a part of my sin and and try and get cozy and live with it. For others of us, it's not so much that we would despair to that end, but we would say, I think I have enough of the gospel to know that Jesus has saved me. And I'm just waiting for the departure. I really don't know what that's going to look like. Maybe I just die or whatever, but I'm just waiting for heaven. I'm waiting for the end, and then I don't have to deal with this body anymore. There was a whole theory, philosophy that was built around this, that you could separate the spiritual world from the physical world was Gnostic belief, $50 word. Ken would do a much better job with this, explaining it. But the whole point would be, you can just do whatever you want in the physical because it really doesn't mean anything. It's the spiritual that has meaning. This means nothing. So I'm just waiting for my body to die. Then I'll be fully realized in the spiritual realm. And you give in to this sin. And for others of us, distraction is a much better way to handle it. I'm not despairing to the point of just giving up. And I'm not really looking at departure. I know that I have some pain and some hurt in my life, but I'm just going to try and distract myself from it. So I will seek other things to fill me up. And those other things, quite honestly, can become addictions. They can become addictions to chemicals or alcohol or pornography or money or power, or work, or working out, or the outdoors. I mean, you live in Bend, right? Why do people come to Bend? For the ultimate outdoor distractions. Oh, they don't call them distractions. This is a lifestyle. We can go skiing. 
and rock climbing and float the rivers and fish and mountain bike. This is heaven. This isn't a distraction. And doctors and lawyers and professional people, here's where they want to be. So we can live this life and be distracted. I love the outdoors. I love Central Oregon. I'm not trying to rip on that whole thing. I'm just saying when it's taken to the level of distraction, we're not dealing with our own sin. We're not living like Jesus is describing. And what he describes here are people that have a sober-minded perspective. What does that take? It takes an inward view of ourselves, an understanding that we're broken with our own sin. And that we're learning to love God to such an extent that we begin to see the world broken with sin and its consequences. So what am I really saying? We're seeing ourselves for who we really are. We're seeing God for who he is. And we're seeing the world for what it is. And in that, we mourn and we're sad and we're sober-minded. Let me share with you a story from Luke 7. Luke 7, you don't have to turn there, just let me read it to you. Luke 7, uh, Jesus is in the middle of uh, a whole bunch of things here as it relates to miracles and teaching and all that. But he happens on to this um, particular situation. Oh, it's not Luke 7. That's interesting. Maybe it's Mark 7. I wrote it down, Luke 7. What's like? Hang on. Let's, uh, let's try Mark 7. We were just in the same book. That's it. Mark 7. So um, here it is, verse 31. And again, he, Jesus, went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. And they implored him to lay his hand on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears. And then after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. It's like, I'd look at that and just laugh. It's like, really? That's in the Bible. You know what I'm saying? This is what Jesus did. I I don't, it's miraculous. (laughs) I'm going to spit and stick my fingers in your mouth. All right. He touched his tongue with the saliva and looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was removed and he began speaking plainly. It's a cool story and it's a cool miracle. But have you ever heard of Jesus sighing a deep sigh? He does here, that's the description, a deep sigh. What's that mean? What's he sighing about? I'd take a shout from the congregation. Anybody know what he's sighing about? He's relaxing. Just getting ready for the big miracle. Just need to relax. Uh, Possibly. Now, here's what I think. A deep sigh. Father, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. This is not the way it's supposed to be. These people are hurting. Sin and its consequences have wreaked havoc with this individual. And how many times am I going to face this? 
It's Jesus understanding deeply and mourning deeply for sin and its consequences. A broken world. And that's what he calls you and I to. That understanding. Here's what's killer about this. The blessing is what? The blessing is, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. But I want you to see this as a description of kingdom citizens. Certainly, we can say that God can come around us, put his arm around us in the deepest broken places of our life and bring a personal comfort. But when Jesus is declaring this of his citizens, the word comfort is rooted in the word courage. Think about it that way. That's where the word comes from. Courage. To give courage. So when you can hear Jesus saying, you will be comforted, think of it this way. This world's broken, and I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to use you to fix it. That's the comfort. That God is going to take you in the middle of your brokenness, restore you, and put you in the game to bring comfort to others. That's what a kingdom citizen looks like. Mourning actually has the potential, the strong potential, to birth mission. To birth in us a desire to live out the kingdom in front of other people. To actually bring the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. But it starts with our own mourning and our own brokenness. I have a friend who's an attorney. And um, it's crazy, but he got saved um, in college. Actually, just ahead of college, actually high school. And he went to Bible college in um, central Michigan. And then from there, I went to Fuller Seminary and earned a Master of Divinity. And then went to work at a church as a pastor for about a year. And then he spun out. Couldn't really understand what was going on and um, knew that he wasn't going to be a pastor. So he went back to school and earned a jurisprudence degree and became an attorney. He'd gotten married and that lasted for about six years and he divorced. He got remarried. He got remarried to a girl whose father was uh, vice president Uh, still, of a significant Christian university. And so he's he's well-versed in Christianity. He has a drinking problem, though. His whole family does, but he's got two brothers that are extremely gifted, talented, and powerful, a stockbroker and another attorney. And they make buku dollars, and he's always kind of looked up to them, and they can handle their liquor. And so he attempted to do the same thing. And he got married and had a little boy, and tried to hide this whole drinking thing uh, from the outside world to some degree, not to his wife, and she tried to kind of go with it for a while, but it just ended up wreaking havoc. And not too long ago, he comes to the conclusion that he is completely distracted, that his life is upside down as a result of alcohol. And he declares it, and he turns to Alcoholics Anonymous, 
familiar with that. My family's been involved with that. So I know a little bit about that. And he turns to Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, actually begins the process of walking through a series of steps, 12. Um, He's a brilliant mind. He knows Christianity, at least all the verbiage. Uh, I think he gets it. I think he actually wants to believe it in his heart, but way, way too smart for his own good. He gets to step four, and it's a searching moral inventory that you have to do, and you have to write it down, and it's anybody that you've ever sinned against or hurt. And you've got to give the reason and what was motivating you, and it's, it's an ugly process. But that has to be done, and then you move on to step five. And step five is you have to go get a confessor to listen to it all. I've done this before, too, with family, where I've been the one that they've told me the story. One of those times that I listened to the story, it rewrote my whole childhood history. I know what the stories are like. Well, this attorney friend of mine calls me and he says, uh, hey, Luke, would you listen to this? He goes, now, before you say yes, this is not pretty. Would you listen to it, though? And I said, yeah, I'm familiar. I'll listen. It took us six hours, two days, three hours apiece. If you're the confessor, the listener, no comments, you just listen. That's it. And they put it out there. And I listened to them. It was devastating. He sinned against me. He said, uh, yeah, Luke, um, I, 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 I held it against you because you're a boring preacher. So if you were in the pulpit on a Sunday, I was just going to be, I was fearful that I would be bored and held it against you. And he went through the rest of the pastoral staff as well and had issues and sins and I listened to it all. Simultaneous to this, over a number of weeks, I was teaching a class at church early morning um, just on the whole idea of mentoring and spiritual direction. And this friend of mine was in there. Like, it's crazy. What are you doing in here? I didn't say that to him, but he was sitting in. And um, we get to the end of it. I've listened to his confession, the whole thing. And he actually types me a note. And he says, you know, Luke, I suppose you're wondering why I'd be sitting in a mentoring class. He said, but do you think there's any hope for me? Do you think there's a shot that I could actually mentor somebody? And I had to stop and think for a second and say, who would I stick in front of this guy? Who really would be, yeah, I was racking my brain. And it came to me uh, that oftentimes in, in, a, in a long time ago, in an athletic time of my life, when I was actually playing competitive sports, I had coaches all the time say to me, hey, you can play hurt, but you cannot play injured. So you might have a twist in your ankle, hurts, you get it taped up. Maybe get a shot, you can play. But if it's broken or severely sprained, you're injured. And that won't do your team any good. You can't play injured, but you can play hurt. And it came back to mine, and so I called him or typed him and just said, yeah, you can play hurt. So here's the deal. You could mentor someone who's behind you. You're at five. Well, anybody behind you, one, two, three, four, five, you could mentor. You can play hurt. But there's still some significant injury for you, and you can't go any farther than that. And I got to thinking about it as it relates to the church and 
and Jesus Christ trying to describe what these kingdom citizens look like. And this is what it looks like. A bunch of broken people with significant hurts in their lives. So where are you right now, this morning? Broken relationships? Hurting somewhere that hasn't been necessarily dealt with? You're injured. But God says, if you can come to the understanding of your brokenness, I'll give you a new perspective. And I'll put you in the game. I will bring comfort to you, courage to you, that you're not alone in your sin and in your brokenness. And when you receive me and are healed, you can turn and help a brother or a sister. So where is your brokenness? Where's the brokenness of your world? Maybe God would be calling you to mission that way. This friend of mine, he's starting there. There's some women at our church that um, understand their sexual past and hurts. They actually have taken up a cause to have for a number of years to minister to the prostitutes on 82nd Avenue in Portland. To go to them. And they go there on a weeknight. And they have a spot and a place where they can actually call those girls off the street. And what do they call them into? A meal. A place where they're served dinner. Warm and comfortable with some conversation. Women that have been broken in their own sexuality and understand it and mourn for the world and its brokenness. Reaching out to other women who are broken. So where is it in Bend? Don't have a lot of prostitutes? I hear homelessness is on the rise. But those are big and visible kinds of brokenness. But where is it in your world? Do you live in suburbia? That's where I live. How are people broken there? What is it that hurts them that they're not talking about? Maybe it's what hurts you. Maybe that's what God is saying. Let me in. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted, given courage. Jesus says, it's broken. It's a deep sigh, it's broken. And I'm going to fix it. And right now, I want to use you to fix it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn. I'm not going to get through all the Beatitudes today, but we're going to look at one more. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness. Meekness is uh, a tamed horse. A horse that's been broken of its spirit, at least to the point where it can be controlled with bit and bridle. Meekness is not something that we look for in our leaders. In fact, I don't find it in common conventional leadership language. You might get an idea of humility coming through, but not meekness. That feels like a doormat. Someone who doesn't speak up. If you try to be poor in spirit and you try to be mournful, you're going to turn Christianity and the Beatitudes into something prescriptive. 
And that's not what we're doing this morning. We're declaring something. Jesus is declaring, this is what my kingdom looks like. Those that are poor and understand who God is. Those who mourn for their own sin and the sin of the world and its consequences. And those who are meek. I would give to you this morning, meekness is ultimately a secure person. That's what meekness is. Secure person. So um, here's what I would choose to do with the rest of my time. Is just simply take you on a really quick tour a quick tour of Jesus after the resurrection and who he comes to meet with. Um, we just celebrated Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, so it's, it's, uh, it's appropriate for us to look at this this morning. Jesus uh, faces down sin and death, goes to the cross, dies, is buried, and raises from the dead. I know the whole world's broken. I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to use you. It's in our very DNA. God has placed it in our DNA to be sent. That's in our DNA. Jesus said, just as the Father sent me, so I'm going to send you. So when he rises from the dead, we could start to think about what would be most strategic, where is the most strategic place for him to go to let the world know that his kingdom comes. Maybe he should go to Rome, stand in front of all of the leaders and say, Starts today. I'm throwing down today. My kingdom comes in full power. Just putting you on record, putting you on notice. Maybe he would go to the university towns. Maybe he would go to the places of influence, but that's not where he goes. Where does he go? Where's the first place he goes? It's funny, but it shows up on a walk. Two guys leaving Jerusalem to go to Emmaus walking on a road. And Jesus shows up and starts to walk with them. They're a little discouraged. They've been in Jerusalem for Passover and all the big hullabaloo as Jesus comes into town and then there's this Passion Week and ends with his crucifixion and he's dead and buried and they are discouraged. And Jesus walks with them on this road. And as he walks with them, and you can, you can find this in Luke at the end of the book of Luke, but He's walking with them, and he begins to say, hey, what's up with you guys? What's going on? They go, where have you been? I mean, he isn't revealing himself as Jesus, just as a dude. And they're going, where have you been? Did you live through last week? Here's what occurred. And Jesus starts to unfold the revelation of God by taking them all the way back through the Bible, the Old Testament, and showing them how God was predicting what had happened that week way back in the Old Testament. It's, it's an unbelievable story. And Jesus is taking two guys and saying, I need you to understand that you're part of a much larger story. It is the story of God. And you're in the middle of it. And it, it's hard. They grind and they're trying to see. And finally, as he is invited to come and break bread with them, he reveals himself to them. And he literally restores relationship. And this becomes the theme of the kingdom. This is how Jesus will be revealed. Jesus to his disciples and believers that he left behind, and you and I, as those who carry the very Jesus in our souls, 
would extend to those around us. He reveals himself to Thomas. If the two guys get the whole story, Thomas gets this. Dude, your doubts are not too big for me. It's okay. Doubt. I can deal with doubt. Come here. Touch my hands, my side. This is for real, Thomas. Thomas doesn't. But Jesus restores relationship to Thomas and says, your doubts don't cause me to be afraid. They don't phase me, Thomas. It's okay. I'm bigger than your doubts. He reveals himself to Peter. Yeah, it's on a beach. Remember that whole scene? He's asking him, do you love me? And Peter's trying to answer it. And Jesus keeps asking. And The gist of that whole conversation. Peter understands only too well what happened during Passion Week. He flees, runs, and abandons Jesus and the whole faith. Jesus said to him, way back in Mark, the beginning chapter, Come and follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. It gets to the very end. Jesus gets put in the ground and Peter says, I don't think I can do this. I'm going back to the lake and going fishing. A complete failure. Have you ever felt that way with God? A complete failure? I felt that way this week. This week. A complete failure. And Jesus shows up on the scene to Peter and says, your failures don't define you. I define you. Your failures don't define you. It's me. And I'm restoring you to relationship. And then lastly, the disciples huddled in a room upstairs 120 of them, not knowing what to do. Jesus is dead. What do we do? Oh, they're praying and hiding and very fearful. And Jesus walks right through the wall. And he says to them, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to breathe on you my spirit. And he does. And in that moment... Jesus declares, nothing will be too big for you. In your fear and in your meekness, I will give you the spirit. And you will inherit the earth. And you, if you would follow Jesus this morning, have inherited the earth. Why? Because circumstance is not worthy of your fear. And brokenness is not worthy of your fear. Jesus comes to restore relationship and does so to the disciples and says, I'll give you my spirit and the whole earth is yours. Light it up. There is nothing to fear. There is nothing too big for you. It's in our DNA to be sent weak and meek but he will cause us to inherit the earth and we'll be free. Free from our sin, satisfied completely in Jesus Christ. Free from our fears because God is bigger. Free to seek his mission. 
Poverty, gospel fear. Mourning, the birthing of mission. Meekness, secure because of Jesus. The whole world is yours. John Wimber started a church movement a number of years ago. The Vineyard Church. He saw the charismatic movement and the working of the Spirit, and he knew there was something truthful in that, but he saw in it a lack of theological grounding. He had training and understanding in theology, deep orthodox theology. And he said, I'd like to build a church that would have those two components, not one or the other, but both. And so that was his attempt with the Vineyard Church. And with the Vineyard Church, he literally began a church planting movement that that went across the United States and even went international. And it's not too long into the process that they begin to have conferences in which he's pulling all these pastors back and asking what's going on. And um, they reach the conclusion that every pastor and every church planter has reached. You can start a movement and present the gospel, declare to the believers who they are, and seek to put them on mission and create all kinds of avenues for them to expose the kingdom to the rest of the world. But in the end, you run up against this principle. It's a funky principle. It's called the 80-20 rule. You ever heard of it? 80% of the resources... 80% of uh, finances, 80% of volunteering, 80% of the effort of any church is done by 20% of the participants. Have you heard that? So church planters and preachers, for a very long time, have tried to focus on how do we reach the 80 to get them in the game and motivated. And you'll watch churches do all kinds of things to make that happen. All kinds of programs and things. And I'm not saying those are all bad. But I am saying this. I don't think it gets at the core. And Wimber said something that stuck with me from the very first day I read it. He gathered his pastors together and he said, let's give ourselves a break. Let's call it the 75-25 rule. Let's just give us five more percent. Because the 25% are the kingdom citizens. And the 75% are unconverted. I don't think about that for a second. He wasn't talking about the people outside the community of vineyard churches. He's talking about the people inside the community. 25% that were converted, giving their time, their resources, their brokenness to the mission of God. And 75% that are unconverted. Is that fair? Well, here's what he said. I can't see that transformation has taken place in the 75%. I can't see it. And rather than try and guilt people into participation, we are going to treat them as if they don't know Jesus and what he offers. And we will live the kingdom before and pray that God would transform their hearts. Jesus describes a kingdom citizen in the Beatitudes. 
poor in spirit, sad and broken for their sin and the world's sin, knowing that they're in the game to not only expose their own brokenness, but to reach out to someone else who's struggling. To understand that they've been given nothing as it relates to significance and power in the world. They're completely meek and fearful, and yet God has breathed his spirit upon his people, and they inherit the whole world. I leave you this morning with this thought. If you're struggling and saying, man, I don't, I don't know where I'm at there. Okay, this, this is the issue. It's not that you need to will up and do something. Get more poor. Get more sorrowful. Get more meek. That's not it. That's not Christianity. That is absolutely incorrect. If you're struggling, wrestling, trying to understand, all you need to do is look at Jesus and what he's done. Take a stronger, deeper look at Jesus this morning. Let that be your motivation. And may Antioch Church in Bend declare to the world this kingdom. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word and this description of your saints. In humility this morning, may we all examine our own hearts and may we walk out today secure that your son, your Christ, has done all the work and brings us the kingdom and comfort and the whole world. May it be true in our hearts and in this church for Jesus' sake and for his glory alone. Amen.